Good evening. How's everyone doing this evening? So glad that you're with us. It's good to be back after being gone for a few weeks of R&R. And so I'm glad that I'm back here with you tonight as we've gathered to worship our God, push the pause button halfway through a week, dive into his presence and get into his word so that we can continue to grow in our love and our relationship with our incredible God. So tonight we're going to worship God. He's a great God and he loves us deeply. And I know you love him, so let's stand together and sing about his greatness. The world is yours, and everything in it, it's all at your command. There is no end to your domain. The planets shake, the galaxies tremble, they turn within your hands. There is no end to your domain, no height or depth you won't sustain. Great in all the earth, it's your glory, O oh God, the universe Amazing you are over history and eternity. You alone are Lord and King. The world is yours and everything in it. It's all at your command. There is no end to your domain. No hide or death. So 
Jesus, the fairest of 10,000, how beautiful he is, how worthy of our praise. That's who we're here to worship this evening. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see. Oh, you hope of a life. 
here for one moment.
Lord, we've declared to you why we are here this evening. Desiring to be in your presence. Desiring to draw close to you as our Lord, our Savior, as our King. And Lord, we completely give you our lives again afresh and anew this evening. We ask that you would continue to create in us a clean heart. That you would continue to create in us the image of Jesus so that when people see us, when people see how we act and respond, they'll be able to say, that person has been with Jesus. We love you this evening. Amen. You may be seated. You would open up your Bibles to John chapter 3. As we continue on our study going through the Bible, and now we are in, in John, probably one of the most familiar chapters for many people in, in Scripture as we come to this. When we think about the Christian faith, what pops into your mind about an essential truth, an essential theological truth? There may be the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. There may be is that, that God is omniscient, omnipotent, and all of these other things. But when it comes to our faith journey, and if you were, John, in writing the essentials of the faith, one of the things that you would want to get out in front of those theological teachings is the necessity of being born again. Everything hinges on being born again. And as John is writing this gospel, he is writing about some of the theological truths that are essential for the faith. It's easy to pretend for a while. It's easy for people to, to put on a mask or put on a face or, or to pretend to be something for a period of time. But that doesn't last very long. Eventually, that nature is going to come out. If you're pretending, and there's a lot of people that pretend to be a Christian, but it doesn't take long for those, those natures, if you're not born again, to come out. To be revealed within this. And that truth will come out. Becoming a Christian, or a, a one who is belonging to Christ as we studied, it's essential that you are born again, that that nature is changed, and that that new person is birthed from above. You can wear Christian logos, you can do all kinds of stuff, you can even speak the language. But eventually, if you're not born again, then you're still going to be who you are. I mean, you, you can take a pig, and you can dress him up, and you can put lipstick on him, right? But it's still a pig. And it's not until that essential nature is changed, and that heart that is changed. And as James, in James chapter 2, says that those actions will reveal your faith. That faith without works is what? Dead. And so as John is writing this gospel, he's giving the account of a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus who comes and talks with Jesus, and Jesus gives in this account of John, 
the, the first and essential theological truth of the seven that he's going to be teaching throughout this gospel. But the first theological truth that, that Jesus reveals in this teaching with Nicodemus is that of being born again. The fact is that natural man cannot understand spiritual things. The natural man is born dead, spiritually dead. Cannot comprehend the spiritual things at all. Dead men, they, they, they don't see, they don't hear. And the dead have to be made alive before they can have a relationship with God. They're dead. And so Nicodemus, this teacher of the law, this Pharisee, really is wrestling with this concept that Jesus brings out to him. He knows there's something about this man, this rabbi, this Jesus, based on the signs, but he can't quite put his finger on it. And so he's wrestling with this. And he comes to Jesus as the night as we're going to pick up here in John chapter 3. He starts out in verse 1. He says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can't, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? So when we look at this, this engagement, we come to this account where Nicodemus shows up. Now, Keep in mind, if you go to the verses previous in John's account, verses 24-25 of chapter 2, Jesus says very specifically on his part, or John says, He knew the men because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus doesn't need anybody. Jesus doesn't need anybody to come in behind and say, You know what, you really need to believe in him. He, he's not playing to the crowd. And I love that about Jesus. He, he, he tells it like it is. And he, he's his own person and his own represent, representative to God. But he's doing miracles and he's doing these signs that are there. Now, Nicodemus, he was an important man. As the text tells us, he was a member of the Sanhedrin in the Jewish rulership. He was a member of the, the, the Pharisaical tribe, which the, they were the spiritualists. They did believe in, in miraculous powers, afterlife, and such things. And so Nicodemus was, was no slouch. He was, he was a teacher of the law. He, he knew what was going on, but yet there was something different about this rabbi. There have been many people throughout the land and throughout the time that had claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to do great miracles, claimed to be of God. But there was something different about him. Now, what do you find in the text that tells us about how Nicodemus acted that is odd for a man of such stature 
and standing within the Jewish people. What do you find different about him? He comes at what time? At night. You ever wonder why he came at night? It wasn't because he worked all day. He came at night because he didn't want anybody to see him. He had such high stature within the Sanhedrin, but he came at night because he, he had legitimate questions for himself to come in to ask Jesus. And so under the cover of night, in, in order to hide his action from his peers, he approaches Jesus. And notice how he does this. This is classic when you don't really want to like, commit in the conversation. He comes up to him and he says, Rabbi, meaning teacher, we. Was there a mouse in your pocket? Is there somebody with you? We. Well, who's he supposedly representing? The Sanhedrin. He doesn't say I. He says we. Why? Because he really doesn't want to take ownership of the question. We, meaning the Sanhedrin. We know that you came from God. Be careful of people that come up with flattery. He comes up and says, we know that you're a man of God. He, he's setting him up. Now, granted, he wants to give him some respect. But did the Sanhedrin really know that Jesus was from God? No. No. The Sanhedrin didn't really know that Jesus was from God. But there is something unique because he's got this power, dunamis, that is allowing him to do these signs that's declaring that at least God is with him. Something that's prophetic. Now, you've got to keep in mind, for 400 years, God has been silent. John the Baptist is now speaking, and he is moving, and there's some miracles that are happening, but, but God's been relatively silent for this period of time. And so Jesus is coming under the power of one who is like a prophet, and he's doing these signs, but they, again, he still can't quite put his finger on it, on who he is. But he knows that he's empowered by God to do signs. He's asking these questions. And in, in a sense, he was coming into this idea, well, I, I believe, but I, I really don't believe. I'm, I'm kind of almost there, but I need some more information. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. There are many people that are what we would call seekers. Where God is enlightening them and opening their eyes, but they're not fully committed to believing, but God is doing that work and enlightening them. Now keep in mind, is Nicodemus at this point in time spiritually alive or spiritually dead? Spiritually dead. So there's this unction of God in bringing him forward and giving him this, this awareness. He didn't really believe that he was from God, but he knew that there was something just special about him. And he says to this, we see these signs and you do them unless God is with him. Jesus answered him in verse 3, and he answered, he says, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot, note, see the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God are both interchangeable terms. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God talks about the realm of God. In other words, the spiritual realm that God exists. God is spirit, and in that realm, God is sovereign over all, but he is in that place where we can't see him within that. And so, in this, he can't see the kingdom of God. Notice, he's trying to figure it out. He says, but unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, think about that for a minute. 
The idea of being able to see is to perceive, right? So what Jesus is saying is, unless you are spiritually alive, you cannot perceive the kingdom of God or anything of God. It is completely impossible. Dead men don't see. Dead men don't hear. Dead men are dead. And so what Jesus is giving is the first fundamental truth of actually being able to see the realm of God. You have to be born again. Question, was Nicodemus a religious man? Yes. He was a very religious man. Was he a smart man? Yes. Did he know the Word? The Torah? Yes. But he couldn't see the spiritual realm by which God ruled. Religion will not open your eyes to God. One must be born again spiritually within this. And so within this, this kingdom of God is veiled behind this this death that he's there. And so Nicodemus says, I want to be able to see. Jesus says, well, you can't see unless you're born again. The word born again or anothen literally, and we use the word born again, but it literally means to be born from above. That's what it literally means, to be born from above. Unless you're born from above. Well, what does that mean, to be born from above? Well, if God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, then it means to be born spiritually or born from above. Now, again, Nicodemus is confused. And the reason being, and we fall into this all the time, is Jesus uses a language that is completely foreign to him. Because the Jews would not know what the term born from above really means. Christians, we all have this special language. You're all, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you have a special language. What's, what's it called? It's called what? Christianese. Christianese. That's that special language that only Christians know. I am blessed. I am sanctified. I'm homogenized. I am... And if you ever talk to somebody who is spiritually dead and you use Christianese, they are clueless. Why? Because the natural man cannot discern spiritually things. So you, you go up to him and you say, you know, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you'll be redeemed. I'll be, what? What does that mean? When you're speaking to the spiritually dead, use a language that they understand. But Jesus is introducing this new concept to mankind. Because they've never experienced what spiritual birth and regeneration really is. That's what, that was Jesus' job, to bring that in. And so he's confused, and so he gets a little sarcastic, a little snarky. How can a man be born again when he's so old? He can't, he can't enter into a second time into his mother's womb again, can he? And a little snarky. Getting a little smart, Nick. Settle down. But, but he's, he's got a good point, and he's trying to understand this. He says, I understand one birth. I understand one birth. Human birth. Natural birth. Now, this gives you a clue. Whenever you're witnessing to somebody, you're talking with them, if they, if they don't have a clue, they're going to speak on that natural tense, that natural level. 
And so he says, I don't understand, born again, because how is a person going to be born again? And he uses the term, the term mother's womb to reflect a natural birth. Well, that tells you that this guy is not discerning anything spiritual. He's keeping it on the temporal, within that. And he doesn't understand. And so, you know, the obvious answer is no. And, and Jesus needs to introduce that which is spiritual. The physical is separate from the spiritual. And it's important to, to understand only God can open the eyes and the ears to the spiritual. That's why he has to be born again. That's why you have to be born again. Have you ever tried reading the Bible and got nothing out of it? Prior to salvation, prior to being born again, that's the, that's the case. You can get a lot of head knowledge, but, but nothing's going to transplant to the heart. So he reveals his, his confusion, and I love how Jesus carries on the conversation with him in verses 5 through 8. Truly, truly. Now, this is the second time. Amen, amen. Whenever something's repeated in the Bible, it means it's important. Pay attention. Amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus says, let's try this again. Now, one thing he did was Jesus approached him at that intellectual level. You're a Pharisee. You're a teacher of the law. Well, you didn't get that one. So let's, let's simplify it a little bit more. Unless of one that has a physical birth and a spiritual birth, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what this is not, and, and this passage has been taken out and, and used a lot of different ways. It, it, some people will use this as a proof text to say that unless a person is water baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, they can't, go to, they can't go to heaven. So they use this as a proof text for water baptism. That is not what Jesus is saying. Not at all. Nicodemus is stuck on the physical side. So he says, basically, unless one is, has a physical birth and a spiritual birth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, we all start with a physical birth. The emphasis is to emphasize not that there is a water baptism and a spiritual birth, but the emphasis is that there are two births. That there is a physical human birth and then there is a spiritual birth that is within this. That, and the point is this. Natural birth is not enough to see the kingdom of God. Get this. Natural birth... Just being born, and if nothing else happens after being born, you will not see the kingdom of God. Everyone that is breathing and taking nourishment today has had a natural birth. Then if you say, well, if I have a natural birth and I obey the law, can I see the kingdom of God? No. If I have a natural birth and I do good things, can I see the kingdom of God? No. If I have a natural birth and I'm just a good person, can I see the kingdom of God? No. If I have a natural birth and I give an intellectual assent, 
Can I see the kingdom of God? No. Two births are required. You have to be born physically and spiritually born again or born from above within this. And Jesus further emphasizes that point within this and, and make it and understand this. In the first time he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. In verse 5, he says, unless you are born of the water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. Notice the distinction that he makes. You can't enter. That means you're going to be outside. Nicodemus had a physical birth, but he didn't have the spiritual birth. Jesus says this, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit, which requires two births. The word flesh there is sarks. Now, whenever you read flesh in the New Testament, we talk about that of the flesh. Is it, It's speaking of the physical flesh, but what else is it speaking of? Sinful flesh. The sinful desires, right? That, that we're to, to press down that flesh. We're not allowed the flesh to control us. Because that is that part of our, our being that is carrying that, that sin nature or the carnal nature. But unless that person is born of the Spirit and led by the Spirit, they're not going to enter in the kingdom of heaven because that which is flesh or in flesh only is incapable of getting into heaven. It's incapable. That's why Jesus had to come. And in that, we see this, this nature, and Jesus goes on and uses this type. And he says, that which is born of spirit. That word spirit in Hebrew is ruach. In Greek, it's pneumia. And literally means spirit or breath. When God formed man out of the dirt, right? Out of, out of the mud and the dirt. By the way, you were all dirt clods. He did what? He breathed into him, Right? When man died for eating the fruit of the tree, what died? Did the flesh die right away? No, the spirit died. So when one is born again, born of the spirit, pneumia, which is the New Testament for breath, what is God doing? Breathing alive the spirit that is within man and restoring. The problem is we are all still stuck in the sarks or this flesh of sin, right? So that's why it's important for us to be led by the Spirit, not of the flesh within this. Now, one of the other elements that he tells us that, that it is something that is spiritual, not only is it giving that God gives breath to man, but he uses this illustration. He says, let me make it a little bit easier for you to understand. Consider the wind. Can you see the wind? You can't see the wind. What can you see? The effect of the wind, right? But you actually cannot see the Can you control wind? No. You cannot control wind. That which is of the Spirit is God-designated. We can feel the effect of the Spirit in our life. We can experience the presence and the power of the Spirit in our life. But we cannot control the Spirit that is in our life. Because the Spirit is the Holy Spirit. 
the third person of the, the Trinity that lives within us, that gives us that life. And within this, no person who was born of the flesh can see the Holy Spirit. We experience the Holy Spirit. That's being born again. If you do not experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you are not born again. Jesus said it very clearly within this. Within this, when we think about this, and I thought, okay, well, how does this kind of work in our life? In the human sense, can you see life? No. You cannot see life. You can see the effect of life. But you cannot see life. You can see the effect of life. If a person is alive, they're going to what? Breathe. They're going to talk. They're going to move. They're going to do all of these things. But life, you can't see. Once life is gone from the body, the body is what? Dead. It, it, and that happens. Now, we try to bring life back. We try to do all these things. But, but life is life. God gives life. God takes life. It's that power. It's that essence that is defined by God in the physical sense. We can't explain... Life medically, we can, we can try, we give a lot of things, but the fact of the matter is, God is still sovereign over life. And in the same manner, God is still sovereign over the Spirit within our life. So within this, one of the things that should have triggered Nicodemus is this. In Ezekiel 37, in the vision of the valley of the dry bones, do you remember the account? In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel has this vision of these dry bones, and the wind came and gave breath to what? The bones. And they were restored. The bones rose up, and then they had meat and sinew and all of that, and they came alive. So when he's talking about this breath of life coming in, Nicodemus, you should get this, because it is in the Old Testament, and it's prophesied that way. And so within this, we see God breathes. Life and the power of the Holy Spirit is a mystery of God. We cannot explain it. It is indescribable how one is born again. It is indescribable how God breathes that life into you. We cannot understand it, but we can accept it. And that is where faith comes in. We accept it by faith. Nicodemus is having a wrestling match with his intellect. I don't understand it. And Jesus is saying, I'm trying to make it simple for you so that you can, but there comes a point in time when it is accepted by faith and not intellect. When it pushes the, the boundaries of our, our human comprehension. That's why in verse 9 he says to him, how can this be? I don't get it. Join the club, Nick. Don't get it. We're not going to get it. Nick, Nicodemus, up until this time, had been taught and had been a teacher that the ability to see the kingdom of God and the ability to enter the kingdom of God was completely based on obedience to the law. If I obey the law... And if I sacrifice and if I do all the things, I will see God and I will be accepted by God. 
And Nicodemus is now hearing from Jesus, no, what you've been taught is not the way to see God. It is a spiritual action. And Nick's mind is just going, I don't get it. You mean everything that I've believed in, everything I've taught is not accurate? My devotion, my submitting, all the laws, all of these things, I don't get it. No, you're not going to get it. Why? Because Nicodemus, you are spiritually dead. And there comes a point in time when you have to go from death to life. And it's a transition that God calls us to. And what He calls us to is to receive it as a gift. Verses 10 to 21. Jesus says, let me explain it to you again. Jesus said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, third time. Amen, amen. I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. And if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will, it, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. But God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest in having been wrought in God. So we look at this next section. Nicodemus says, how can these be? Jesus says, okay, I'm going to take over the conversation. And he just starts unpacking. He starts unpacking this whole gospel message that, that is given to him. That spiritual life is a gift. It is not something that, that you work at. It is not something that you earn. It is a gift. And he starts out with his purpose for coming. Look at verses 11 to 13. Amen, I, amen, I say to you, we speak of that which we know and testify of the scenes that we've seen. We do not accept this testimony. If you... If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will I tell you the heavenly? In other words, I've, I've been trying to tell you these things. That this eternal life, it, it, it starts with faith in believing. I have told you these illustrations and you're not accepting the illustrations that I've given you. I've tried to lay it out plainly. You're not accepting it. If you're not accepting these simple analogies then how are you going to accept something more complicated as spiritual that you can't even understand? At some point, you have, to, you have to accept the truth that is there. And you have to receive it as a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Not as a result of works. And, and so within this, Nick, this is a paradigm shift. And isn't that true when we come to faith? 
Isn't it a paradigm shift for us? We think if I am good enough, then God will accept me. If I do the right things, then God's going to accept me. If, if I work hard enough, God's going to accept me. Romans 5 says that while you were yet a sinner, Jesus died for you. That before the foundations of the world, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. Not something you do. And you're saying, well, I don't understand it. Just smile and say thank you. Just accept it. Hebrews 11.6 says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He, being God, is a rewarder of those who will seek Him. It's all based on faith. And so for, for Jesus, he starts out and he says, I'm telling you some temporal things to try to, the wind and, 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 and breath and, and life and all of that, and you're not accepting it. And if you don't accept this simple part, you're never going to accept the spiritual. There is a point in time when you have to fall into the hands of God. You just have to fall into him and say, God, here I am. I, I, I got nothing. But Nicodemus' problem was a failure, not of intellect. He wasn't dumb. Nicodemus' problem was a failure of faith. It is this, this leap, this lean, this falling, this letting go. To be able to, to set aside his human intellect. And understand that He is the created and will never understand the Creator. That God is much bigger than His comprehension and His understanding. That's a journey we're all on, isn't it? Where, where God is so far above our understanding and our comprehension where we just got to go, okay, God, I don't, I don't get it, but you got this, where I trust in you. And, and within this, Nicodemus really needed to stop trying to figure out what Jesus was saying from an intellectual standpoint and say, yes. Jesus came to reveal God to man. Why? Because God is spirit. Man will never, ever, ever in this temporal, carnal state be able to see a holy God. Completely impossible. So what God in His gracious love had done with purpose, is He sent His Son to the earth to reveal God to man. To add to Himself this humanity so that we could see God in the flesh. So that we would be able to know our Father. We could not and cannot ascend to heaven. So what happened? Heaven descended to us. Think about that. Dead don't rise. But the living came to us. Jesus. And so Jesus brought heaven down to be with us. To reveal what? Love. Incredible love. Mercy. Grace. Holiness. Power. When Philip wanted to be able to see God, he went to Jesus and said, Show us the Father. 
And what did Jesus say to Philip? Have I been so long with you, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. And so within this, he, he says, look at, I, I, you've got to understand, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then, not only does he give what happened in order for Jesus to come down, God to come down incarnate, in flesh to be here, but then he gives the purpose. Now he reaches back to Nicodemus's history. And he reaches all the way back to Moses, out of Numbers 21, 4 through 9. And he uses this illustration that demonstrates how Israel showed faith. And, and this whole example, in Numbers 21, 4 to 9, a little long, follow along. It says, And then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. People spoke against God and Moses. So what were they doing? They were murmuring. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Manna all the time and all that. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. And so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that anyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man... When he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So what happened? Well, we know the account. Israel's going around and they said, well, we don't have any food. We don't have any water. God says, okay, here's the, here's the rock. Here's your water. Here's manna. Get your manna. Here's the quail. Get the quail. Oh, we don't like this food. We're grumbling and complaining. I know people today don't ever grumble and complain. you imagine what would happen if God just said, you know, I'm tired. So I'm going to send some snakes for a while. That would be so cool. But the thing is, so they're grumbling and they're complaining and they're murmuring and God said, enough with this. So He sent these serpents that were biting people and they were getting sick and dying. Then they repented. The food's not so bad, Moses. We're dying. So, God says, okay, Moses, I want you to make a poll and I want you to take one of the... Fashion, fashion a serpent onto the pole, put it in the center of the camp, and tell the people, if they get bit, which tells me the fact that they were still grumbling and complaining, if they get bit, just tell them to go look at the pole and they'll be healed. You think about that. In my sanctified imagination, I can picture people going, I will not look at that pole. I don't care how many times I get bit. I will not look at that stupid pole. Because their flesh is rotting off because of the snake bite and the poison. Is, I will not. You think about that people in the world today. I will not repent. I will not confess my sin. I will not do that. I would rather die. Okay. You get what you get. Don't throw a fit. The pole was set up in the middle of the camp. Anyone, by grace, did God have to save any of them? But by grace, He provided a way out 
through faith, if they looked at the pole, they would be healed. So here we have an example in numbers of divine sovereignty and judgment, righteous judgment over sin, yet grace being given, and all they had to do was exercise faith. Nicodemus, you know this account. In the same way, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And anyone who is bit by sin, which means who? Everyone. If they look to Jesus on the cross, they will be saved. By grace, God provided the provision through faith, not of works. This bronze snake that sits on the pole was given by God to save life. You know, it's interesting in the medical industry today, have you ever seen, you, you know the symbol? For, for a, a, a society that hates God, they got the center right there, you know, it's something straight out of God's Word, an act of grace that's in it. And they don't even have a clue. Maybe you should ask a medic next time or a doctor. What does that really mean? But within that, you think about that whole construct, right? To be able to set that up. Now, later on, that thing would end up becoming an idol, and it would be called Nehushtan. They would grind it up and get rid of it because they started worshiping it as an idol. Man will twist just about anything. But you look at this, and so Jesus says, basically, in the same way, in the same way, the Son of Man will be lifted up within that. So the snake on the pole was a type. Notice what he says in verse 15, so that... Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. If you were to go through and count how many times in him, believe in him, is in there, it's about six different times within that. That word in is dative, and it's the idea of putting your whole faith and trust in Jesus that is in this. Whoever believes in him. That is a universal opportunity. That is not, and hear me clearly, this is not teaching universal salvation. Not everybody is saved, but everybody does have that opportunity. And there is a tension between between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they work in tension together. Just as in the days of Israel and in our days, there are many people that refuse to look at the cross. They're already snake bit with sin, and they refuse Well, that's the condition. They were already dead. And the only way for them to be saved is to be born from above, and that only comes through putting your faith in Jesus. In Jesus as the sacrificial provision for your sin. That He died for you. Your life is in Him. And He's that provision. John 3, 16-18, probably some of the best known verses by Non-Christians and Christians alike. You can, you can find John 3.16 at most football games. Clueless about what it means, but they put it up there, the guy in the end zone. Hopefully they'll read it. But we think about this, John 3.16 to 18, and there's three elements in those three verses. The first is, in 16, it's the statement of fact. God sent His Son. That is a fact. 
it is a truth that God took the initiative first. You do not find God. God finds you. You cannot work your way up to God. God comes to you. And God sent His Son, who is the agent of salvation, to be the means of salvation. God did that initiative. The second, not only is a statement of fact, but it's a statement of purpose. If you notice in verse 17, it's the purpose. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might, and that's a subjunctive potential, might be saved through Him. All of the world, universal? No. But universal opportunity. Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to be the provision for salvation for anyone that would put their faith and trust Him. That was His purpose. So we have the statement of fact. God's the agent of salvation. Statement of purpose. Jesus is the means of salvation. And then we have the third, which is the statement of condition in verse 18. Here's the condition. He who believes in Him is not judged. That's a condition. He who does not believe has already been judged. You say, well, what's the condition? Every person from the time that they are born and they suck air for the first time is already judged. Already judged and condemned to, to hell from, from that first breath. You say, well, what did that baby do wrong? Absolutely nothing. They were born into sin. Already judged. Then how do we change that? You come to the place of understanding where you trust in Jesus, put trust in Him. Notice what 18 says. He who believes. You have to change the condition. How do you change the condition? Being born again. Or born the second time. Born from above. That's how you change the condition. If you don't change the condition, then you remain judged already. Which is a very scary thing. The other thing that I think that's important for us to understand is this word love. This is not a warm, fuzzy, huggy kind of feeling. So God so loved the world. He gave His Son. No, it's a verb. Love is a verb. It is an action. You cannot say, I love you, unless action is accompanying what you're saying. God is not up there going, well, I love everybody, but I'm not doing anything about it. No. Love is an action, and God demonstrated His love. How did He demonstrate that love? He gave His only begotten. The word there is monogenous. It literally means the one of a kind. The unique. There is no one else. It is the ultimate act of self-giving. Do you remember when God called Abraham to sacrifice his son, his one and only son? The same word is used. The one of a kind. As a type. It is most cherished possession of a father. God is self-giving. He held nothing back in His action of love for you. Why should I believe in God? Because He has done everything, everything to change your condition. Everything. 
And if you turn your back on that, then you just stay the way you are and receive that judgment. God is the initiator and the provider of all things that pertain to salvation. We have one thing and one thing only. Accept. Smile and say thank you. Smile and say thank you. Because God has done everything. And you put your faith and your trust in Him. Now, He ends this in 19 to 21. And He does it in such a way of the illusion of light and darkness. Jesus doesn't have to condemn man because man's condemned already. Jesus doesn't have to send men into darkness because they're in darkness already. But He is the light that breaks through the darkness. Imagine living in a cave, deep, deep inside a cave. And all of a sudden, a beam of light shines that leads the way out. And all you have to do is follow that light. It is light that shines into the darkness and you follow that light. Now, there will be some people that say, I don't want to go out in the light. I love the darkness more than the light. That's your prerogative. But you're going to remain in that darkness. Why don't you want to go out in the light? Because it will reveal the evil deeds. It'll be the things that I, I, I it'll tell me what I really am. Let me help you out. You're a dirty, rotten sinner that is going to die and go to hell because of your condition. Now you know. Now what are you going to do about it? Because when you address your sin and ask for forgiveness for that sin, then the weight and the, and the punishment of that sin is taken from you because it was already paid for at the cross. And you just surrender. Just surrender. The thing is, so many people, they love this darkness and this condemnation is a condition that man remains in. Notice in verse 20 it says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to light for fear. Fear. That his deeds will be exposed. Where does fear come from? I can tell you this, the pit of hell. The pit of hell. If God has done all of this to show his love towards you, and you've got some voice saying, you know what, God doesn't really love you. He gave his only son. God's going to judge you the minute you come to him. Already judged. What I'm getting is life. This condemnation comes straight from the pit of hell. We need to understand that if we truly believe, things will change. Verse 21, but he who, notice, practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds might be made manifest, having been wrought in God. I still sin, but I have a Savior that had died for those sins. All my past, present, and future sins. Does that give me the license to sin even that much more? Absolutely not. But now I have an awareness of it. And when Satan wants to condemn me for those sins and remind me of what a dirty, rotten sinner I am, I can remind him that, no, I'm not. I'm a child of the Most High. A saint. And God sees me as a saint that's stuck in the dirty, rotten flesh. And I'll be like that until I trade up. That's the hope. 
That ends Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus. John gives us a little bit more of this transition, and we'll cover it verses 22 to 36, where we see the transition, and John covers this transition because it's a transition of leadership. For John, the, um, the Baptist is now transitioning and diminishing, and Jesus is being raised up. Verses 22 to 30, he says this, After these things, after what things? After this conversation with Nicodemus, following Nicodemus, in this, in this time, the things Jesus, his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. His disciples were not Jesus. And John also was baptizing in Aon near Salem because there was much water there, and the people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a dissension of, on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, I must decrease. So what's going on? Well, Jesus is starting to raise in popularity. He has his disciples. His disciples apparently are starting to, to baptize. But then you got John, the baptizer, who is still on the scene and baptizing for the remission of sins. And he's up in the north, and there's lots of water, and there's baptism there. So John's disciples... They went to John and they say, hey, look at John, there's something fishy going on here. He's taking all our people. His group is getting bigger than our group. The one that was there, he's, he's taken over. And in this, we've got to understand that Jesus was having an effective ministry. People were coming to him. And Jesus came, as in Luke 19.10, says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And Jesus' disciples were baptizing, yet the Pharisees were watching all of this. In fact, in John 4, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So, here you got John the Baptist, who is this camel-haired, locust-eating, honey-sucking kind of prophet guy. And now you've got Jesus, right? And he's growing, and the Pharisees are going, we are losing our people. And so now there's this tension that's going on. And as John's people, are, they're, they're getting frustrated. One of the dangers that we find in ministry is this. Spiritual jealousy when God is moving. Everybody has a role. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the keeper of the Torah and the law, they had a role. There was nothing wrong with them. But their time had come. And it was over. They were done. John the baptizer had a role. What was his role? Prepare people for Jesus. His time had come. Now it was over. Why? Because Jesus was here. There are seasons that happen 
for any church or any movement. And we see those seasons come and go where God does new works. John's baptism was to make people aware of their sin, but Jesus, the one who forgives sin, was here. And he was going to bring this, this baptism of the Spirit eventually. And within this, we'll even see later on in Acts where John's disciples in Acts have to leave that and be baptized in the Spirit. But they were still working as under John within this. And so we see this, this serving in this area. John was continuing until he was done. John hadn't been thrown in prison yet. So the writer John says, well, he's not in prison yet. He's still doing it. And I think that's important to understand that John continued to work until he was thrown in prison. Keep doing it until God says you're done. But the ministry was growing. And there was conflict. Josephus, the historian, even, even writes that uh, that John's baptism was, was changing people within this. Others were, were struggling with this. And as he worked through, he began to grow. But I love what he says in verse 30. Look at what he says. He must what? Increase and I must what? Decrease. Nobody should ever see you higher than Jesus. No one. Jesus must increase. I must decrease. This is, I was just talking with somebody today about a pastor who fell from grace in the pulpit and he had marital affair and lost his position and all kinds of different things. I studied under this pastor for a couple of terms and at a school and all of this stuff. And this person, we, we were talking, we, we didn't know each other really until today. Yeah, and this person was telling me just how Many people were hurt by that fall. Why did that happen? Here's why it happened. You'll see it time and time again. They start reading their own press and they start feeling like they're above the law. More than they should be. And it was prideful arrogance. And I love the humility of John the baptizer who says... It is not my gig. He must increase. I must decrease. I'm going to keep going until God pulls me out, and God would. And I love the fact that he didn't back down, but he kept on pulling back, and he checked his disciples in that, within that. And he, he pushed back on ministry jealousy, and he maintained ministry humility, because ultimately God is sovereign over all. And I love the fact that he says, I am, the, I am not the bridegroom. I, I am a friend of the bride. I'm the best man. How would it be if you went to a wedding ceremony and the best man went up and said to the bridegroom, Hey, buddy, step aside. <laughs> you don't do that. It's all about the bride and the bridegroom. Within this. Jesus would even say in Mark 2.19, He says, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast. Can they? So those songs, the bridegroom is with them, they can't fast. And in 2 Corinthians 11.2, He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to as a husband, so as Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So within this, John knew his place. And he says, And this is my joy. My joy is filled. And that word literally means to be filled to the brim. I am stoked when somebody falls in love with Jesus. 
I am, I am blown away when somebody says, hey, Carrie, you know what? I'm going to be moving and I'm going to be doing this ministry over here. God's leading me over here. And I've watched, and I've been in ministry long enough to watch people just grow. I've been in contact with a friend, a kid that, it's not a kid anymore. My gosh, I'm old. This young man that I met, oh gosh, 30 years ago, um, at an orphanage in Baja, Mexico, when he was probably 17. And this kid was loving Jesus, and he was the right-hand man to, to the guy that was running the orphanage. And he would grow up, and then he would go to Bible college, and, and I've been following his ministry. He is in Mazatlan right now. And he has started a church in Mazatlan that starts churches. And over the last five years, he's started at least six other churches in Mexico that have no churches. And over the next three years, he's got three other churches already slated. He's got 21 people he is training to be pastors of those churches. This was this kid, this 17-year-old that I just played volleyball with and we did ministry. And I texted him and I said, hey, would you be interested in doing ministry together? He said, that would be a dream come true to do this again. Now, he's a lot older and I'm a lot older. But when you see somebody grow in the faith and, and you pass the baton to a younger person that is doing it, you can sit back and go, you know, take it. Run with it. And that's what we should be doing. And John is doing that with Jesus. And so he, he emphasizes that in the last part of this in verses 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth. So notice the distinction he makes between Jesus and him. And speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And he who has seen and heard of the testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and gives all things into his hands, and he who believes in the Son, note, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So John finishes his, his message to his disciples saying, look, it's all about who you believe in. And it's not me. It's him. He's the one that you believe in. All things are in him. Why? Because 35 tells us that the Father passed the authority to him. Philippians 2.10, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Those that are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And it all comes down to what he ends in verse 36. Do you accept him and believe in him or not? That's where it ends up. One thing. One thing only. Consider yourself this morning, this evening. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Are you born again? And if you are, how does your life show it? Because it will. If it hasn't, you've got to do some business with God. And it's all about faith. And it's all about belief. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that we can come to this place, that we can honor you and, and hear from your word, from you directly, Lord Jesus, on what we should do. And that is to set ourselves aside and to believe in you. Lord, I know that you are above all and life is only in you. And I pray for those, whether they're watching online or in this room, that they would declare that faith, 
with a, with a pure heart, with a right heart. Lord, sometimes we struggle with our faith, but it all starts with one simple action. Being born from above. And maybe that's you today where you're struggling with that and you've always struggled or you're in that place of struggle and you have not surrendered. Then pray. Father, I surrender my life to You. I fall into Your hands. Will You fill me with Your Spirit and cause me to be born from above that I might know that I have eternal life and be empowered to live that life even today. As we close out, make this song your creed, your calling, and your praise. Our Father everlasting, the our creating one, God Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior. I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again.
people said. Amen. Praise Jesus. Have a great rest of your week. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.